Our reading from today is from the letter of James. It is chapter 3, verses 13 through chapter 4, verse 10. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is, no, it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are continuing in our series in the book of James, which has been now for five weeks, and we are experiencing something interesting. What does a prolonged series in a book full of rebuke feel like? Many of you hear the words of James and you think to yourself, boy, this is, this is tough. What's going on? Who's he writing to? What's at work in these passages? What's, what's James getting on about? What is, what is he pointing to? Is he indicating me? Is he implicating me? Or is James have another purpose? Is James writing to the unbeliever or to the believer? And one, one of the things I want to maintain and continue to assert and demonstrate from the word is James's writing to Christians. Paul says, I have no business judging outsiders. It is those inside the church that we are to judge. And the point of, of his using that word judge is not to condemn, but rather to make a demarcation, to bring a sword down and let it cleave left to right. One of the things that James is doing is he's identifying sinful patterns, ways of life that are persisting in the church. And so as we've been going through these passages, we've been noticing James bringing the gospel to bear, shining a light on dark hearts. And, and for us, it's been 
it's been important to see his major theme of what is the nature of self-deception in the Christian walk and Christian life. How is it that people can come to Christ, have some sort of experience of new life, begin to join together as a body, he's writing to the churches, the, the diaspora, the, the tribes spread across the world, how is it that they can come together and then remain in these sort of warring uh, conditions? He's, he's asking them, what's causing these wars and fights and quarrels among you? And he wants to disclose the source of them so that he can deliver them from those errors and from those quarrels. And so I want to remind us, this book is purely gospel. Why is it purely gospel? Because the gospel does not leave us in our sin. The gospel calls us to new life in Christ, and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, it brings sanctification to bear in a believer's life. So I want to look at three main elements of today's reading. One thing to just keep in mind is this reading crosses a chapter boundary, but I think thematically these verses are linked, and the boundary of chapter 4 is, is in uh, not, a, not a terrible spot, but not a great spot either. Uh, but this, these ideas, moving from verse 13 all the way to verse 10 in the next chapter, really focus around three central ideas. First, the nature of what is jealousy and selfish ambition. We're going to discover through James's writing here what these are and what they produce in a believer. Then we want to look at fights among Christians. The, the key idea here is he's asking what causes fights and quarrels among you, not among the world. He's not talking about wars politically or militarily, or fights among the heathen world. He is describing fights in the churches. And then finally, the remedy of repentance. What is it that James calls us to do? And here it will be a very important time to understand what is the repair for a Christian? Does a Christian who is caught in sin and trapped in sin, do they need to go through some sort of process such as praying a certain thing a number of times or reading their Bible a certain number of hours or any other sort of schedule of penance or rather is James asking or commanding them to execute a transaction in the heart? That is, is he calling them to do certain outward things or is he calling them to bring the grace of God to bear to perform an inward reality change? I think and will maintain that it is the latter. So I want to review the series as we've experienced it so far. My major paradigm of James, James's letter is it's a letter that is warning against self-deception. It is a letter that is being written to churches, and these churches are filled with saints and sinners, and many of them are the same people. We looked at how uh, through this letter... James is bringing to bear a, a call to repentance, and he's presuming, as we're, again we're going to see today, he's presuming that these people are believers, that they are saints. And yet, although they are believers, although they profess faith, although they have, although they have walked with God to some degree, they are not walking according to their calling. They have not begun to walk uh, in a way that is worthy of the Lord, or a walk in, that is in a right manner of the gospel. And 
we might easily say that this is a condition that is always applicable to the Christian. If you remember uh, our quote from Martin Luther, that we as, as believers are simultaneously just and sinners. We are, we are declared righteous by God, and yet there is an inward corruption which remains in us. And this is exactly what James is targeting. So there is a warning against self-deception of a sinner who presumes himself to be a saint, but there is also the warning for the saint who presumes himself to, to be in a good place with the Lord and in no need of caution or care or exercising the use of God's graces. This is the sort of notion of, of the backward or backsliding Christian. This idea that, you know, I've made some progress in the faith and I can then just continue to coast. The Christian walk, the Christian life is never set on autopilot. One of, one of my favorite things about my new car is it doesn't have cruise control. And one of, every time I go to turn it on, I'm like, nope, it's not there. Because I had a car with cruise control. And now the new car I have, it doesn't have cruise control. And I, I go, I drive uh, a Jetta from 04 and now a Jetta from 2011. And it's the same steering wheel and same steering column. And every time I go to turn on the cruise control, it's a habit that has to die. It's it's not possible to turn the car onto autopilot. And I, I believe that is applicable to the Christian life. We cannot, as Christians, coast. And when we begin to coast, we set ourselves up for, for error and many serious dangers. So James is writing a book about self-deception in the church, and he provides indications or tests which he gives his hearers to, to examine themselves with, and then he provides remedies and the means of repentance and instructions as how to make a repair. So, in the first chapter, we saw that those who persevere when tempted are truly blessed, and those who do not bring forth death, James 1, 12 through 18. We saw in the next message that those who do the word of God are blessed, not merely those who hear it. Jesus says, blessed are you if you hear these things, if you also do them. And so those who presume to merely hear the word of God but not do them are deceiving themselves. Those who keep God's law from the heart have new hearts. Those who don't should repent. Over and over again, James is bringing the gospel to bear. He's shining a light in an otherwise dark place. Those who claim a faith without the fruit of good works are dead. James uses this word in verse 26. He says, so also faith without works is dead. That faith is not able to save that person. Those whose tongues bring forth death have a religion that is worthless. We've been seeing how James is asserting things in the first chapter. He's mentioning things. And then in the later chapters, he's re-examining and coming back to develop in depth. We saw in James 1.26, he says, that religion is worthless if you have a tongue that is unbridled. And then later in James 3, he begins to expand on what the unbridled tongue looks like. I was so happy after preaching James 3 last week that immediately as soon as I got home later and, and indeed throughout all of last week, as I would say things throughout my week, I, I replied to myself, shouldn't have said that. Uh, I instantly was brought to an awareness of how loose my speech is. And, and this is God's grace to us. It is not God's grace to leave us in our sin. If we are trapped in our sin, we are, we are denying the master who bought us. And so God's word ought to be used not in some way to, to 
receive approval by God, but in some way as to make a godly use of God's word to call out error and to arm ourselves with the truth of God's promise for righteousness in behavior and in living. And so James is writing a letter that is saying, if you do not pass these tests, there needs to be a repair. There needs to be godly repentance. So James has just demonstrated the incompatibility of claiming life while having no fruit, and he's been mostly looking at external things. Of course, those external things match an inward reality, and now at this point in the letter, he begins to shine his light, especially at the heart of man as it concerns murder and anger towards their brothers. To those who are alive, he calls them to be lights in the world. In verse 13, he says, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. This is what Christians are to do. It is, it is no shameful thing to allow your good works to be exposed to those who would see them and give glory to God. That is a part of the Christian calling. We are not supposed to take our light and put it under a basket. We are not supposed to hide the good work of God and keep it private. Our Christian life cannot merely be done in secret. It must also be demonstrated publicly. They, these good works are to be done publicly. They are to be shown. We, we saw how faith is an inward matter of the heart, but it has to be manifested. It has to be shown. It has to be displayed. And James is calling his hearers to that. He's saying, if you have true wisdom, if you have true understanding, you ought to show it through your good works. It has to become manifest those who have the graces of the Lord, who is the only source of wisdom, should share their gifts with others. Your brothers and sisters are being neglected if you hide your light, so to speak. If you, if you keep your wisdom or your understanding, which is given of the Lord alone, if you keep that to yourself, your brothers and sisters around you are, uh, are suffering because of that. I, I remember a few years ago, I found this friend. He's a good reformed brother. I actually only know him through the internet. But one of the things that amazed me is his use of social media was so beautiful in that he was routinely posting the hardest verses in the Bible. Not the verses everyone likes. Not John 3.16, as great as that verse is. Not, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, as great as that verse is. He, he would judge, he, he would use words that judge the wayward heart. On, on his Facebook feed and Twitter feed. And it was so life-bringing to me because it was putting forth the glories and beauties of Christ, and yet at the same time, it was not compromised. It was, it was wonderful. It was sweet. It was pure. It, it, it encouraged me to use my social media profile in a more gracious way, in a, in a way that brought more life. We ought not to hide our wisdom if it is given to us of the Lord. And then James goes on to say, but if you have a different sort of wisdom that is not real wisdom, you ought to repent. Those who seek to be made much of do not have a wisdom from the Lord, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Remember, James equivocates in these passages. Remember in James 2, he says, if someone says they have faith, but that faith has no fruit, it is no faith at all. But he uses the word faith. Here, he does the same thing. 
If you are wise and have understanding, by your good conduct, show your wisdom in meekness. Then he goes on to say, but if you have this other sort of wisdom, it's no wisdom at all. He uses the same term and he equivocates. He speaks with the same word in two different ways to bring a contrast. He's saying there is a wisdom which comes from heaven and there is a wisdom which comes from the evil one. It's earthly, it's mundane, it's, it's full of baseness in it. It is unspiritual. It's anti-spiritual. That is to say, it's not, it's not uh, physical, but rather it is against the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. It is a spiritual wisdom, but it is a spiritual wisdom that comes from hell. It is a, it is a wisdom propagated by devils. That is what James is saying. The, that sort of wisdom or the sort of mindset and heart values which seek to be ambitious and jealous, that is a perversion from the enemy. Jealousy is the desire to have something which belongs to another. Unless you think that you're content with your physical goods, jealousy routinely is associated with jealousy over spiritual graces. Jealousy concerning things that are coming from the hand of God alone. Likewise, selfish ambition is the desire to be esteemed in the eyes of man. If you remember, if you were here in our, during our time in the book of Galatians, Paul warned the Galatian church, he said to them that these people, the, the, the Judaizers, seek to shut you out that you may make much of them. That is to say, they were trying to assert themselves as spiritual leadership so that the people in the church of Galatia would look to them as the ones with real wisdom. And then Paul goes on to say, it's good to be made much of for a good reason. It's good to, to be esteemed in the church because of the grace of God. It is not good to be made much of for selfish gain. It's not good to use God's graces and turn them toward us. While a Christian may have knowledge, if they use that knowledge for self, they neither have knowledge nor love for their neighbor. Paul warned this in 1 Corinthians 8. He, he described the nature of love, which is not loving. It's, it's knowledge which puffs up, but love builds up. He likewise said, if I have all knowledge, if I have all prophetic power and all knowledge so as to explain all mysteries, if I can expound Christ in the Old Testament on every page and have not love, I have nothing. You see, the chief aim of our faith is love from a pure heart. Paul's warning his hearers, he's saying knowledge alone is, is destructive if it is not tempered with love. This is exactly what James is saying. He says, if you have wisdom and understanding or wisdom and knowledge, then show it through meekness. But if not, you have a false wisdom, a wisdom which comes from hell. James identifies this wisdom as being no real wisdom, but a doctrine of devils. Look very closely at this word demonic. This is, this is meaning relating to demons. This is saying this is the sort of wisdom that an evil spirit would whisper in your ear. I'm reminded of stories from the early church fathers. There, there's one, I, I forget his, his name, I think it is uh, Isaac. Um, St. Isaac was, I believe, third or fourth century, but the, he recounted this story in which after preaching among one of the pagan nations, which were in much greater supply back then, although there's still many today, um, he, he was on his way home and he, he had 
an encounter with an angel who came and was flattering him and telling him, oh, you did such a great job. You, you were so eloquent in your speech. So many souls were converted. You're the real deal. And he, at first, is, in his, in his uh, writing of his experience, he says, at first I was taken in and thought the Lord had sent this angel to, to minister to me, but I realized he was continually speaking about me and he never wanted to make much of Christ. And so he rebuked the spirit and it left him. But the greatest temptation he said he faced in the entire journey was that spirit. It wasn't the persecutions. It was that his heart was subtly tempted with being seen as great and great and powerful. This idea that we can use the grace of God or our wisdom or our understanding to be made much of ourselves is an insidious thing. And yet it is often extremely extremely common. Unfortunately, this sin, this type of sin, jealousy and selfish ambition, is very common, especially common in the church. And I want to just point out exactly what James is talking about here. He's saying a wisdom that does not come from above, but a wisdom that seeks to be jealous of other gifts. So when I get on to desiringgod.org and I watch John Piper eloquently preach... My temptation is, boy, I wish I could be John Piper. I wish I could preach like that, or I wish I had the eloquence or could use cultural relevance like Tim Keller, or I wish I had the deep understanding of the Old Testament like James Jordan, and I could bring all mysteries to bear for the church. But that sort of desire to be someone else is earthly Spirit, unspiritual and demonic. Likewise, if you want to preach the gospel so that you would be seen great in the church, uh, that is a great warning sign to you that, that the enemy has taken a hold of your heart. I count it as an extreme joy that I was able to lead worship, not only here, but at other venues in which there were 10 or 20 people for years. The, the reason why is because God over time was pruning from me a desire to be made much of. You get on YouTube and you look up Bethel Music or IHOP, which I love and enjoy. For a worship leader, the greatest temptation is, I want to be that. These are, these are the sort of sins which prevail in the church. And woe are we if we do not take caution against them. Oh, I wish I could be like Douglas Wilson and be able to hold conferences and, and execute, you know, wisdom for teaching. All of these things are good. All of these things are, bring glory to Christ, but they have to be approached in humility. If you are seeking to serve Christ to be made much of yourself, you are not serving Christ, you are serving yourself. And it is exactly at these sorts of sins, which I believe James is pointing his finger, he says it brings every sort of evil. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Have you ever been tempted to compromise your integrity for the sake of ministry? Verse 16. I, I really appreciate some of the beautiful patterns in scripture, and one of them actually has nothing to do with the writing of scripture, but just the versification of scripture. It seems that 3.16 is always a very good place to go. John 3.16, 2 Timothy 3.16 especially, and we might note here a very important verse for those who desire to serve Christ. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. There will be. It is a necessary result of jealousy and, and ambition. It is a twisting of what we were created to be as 
saints. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Remember how he said to his hearers, he said that they ought not to make distinctions between the rich and pure. The wisdom from above is impartial. It doesn't make distinctions according to the flesh. James describes this sort of heavenly wisdom as that which is the fruit of the Spirit. If you compare it to Paul's list of the fruits of the Spirit, they line up one for one. Now, there's different words used and there's different applications, but they're one and the same. They come from the same source. The wisdom from above is content. Have you ever considered what it means to be content with your station in life? Now, I believe James is addressing issues in the church, and he is certainly speaking about selfish ambition and jealousy as concerned spiritual matters, but woe are we if we also neglect the sort of jealousy and ambition which comes about with physical matters. Many Christians, though they claim that they are going to be with Christ for eternity, though they claim that they have a place and a home in heaven, though they claim they are not citizens of this earth, but their citizenship is in heaven, from which they are awaiting a salvation and a savior, they go on to see their other neighbors and covet the things that they own. This happens with homes. It happens especially with spouses. It happens with jobs. It happens with businesses. It happens with clothing. But the heart of man is able to create an idol out of anything. And so, because we know this, we ought to be cautious lest our jealousy get away from us. This sort of jealousy and spiritual ambition, or sorry, uh, selfish ambition, is not from the Lord. Contentedness is a great thing, and it is to be commended at all times. It should be sought after. The, The chief sin in a lack of contentment is a maligning of the character of the sovereignty of God. God is the one who has chosen your station and circumstances, and you ought to receive that with meekness and humility. Wisdom from above is content, it is humble, and it is truthful. In all ways, it is considering of one's neighbor in service and in love. Verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is shown in peace by those who make peace. I I have a a really great love for this portion of James because if you look at 13 and 18, they're kind of similar ideas, but then if you look at verse 14 and 15, that is kind of a B and a C, and then 16 and 17 is another B and C. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, then he goes to say that is not wisdom, And then again in verse 16, for when jealousy and selfish ambition exist, and then verse 17 is wisdom. So you have jealousy and selfish ambition, then wisdom. It's it's a panel structure. It's kind of repeating some ideas, and then verse 18 brings it to a close. His, uh, His idea here is this, that those who are wise and those who have true understanding are the ones who are the peacemakers. Those who use their wisdom and understanding to bless their neighbors, to cease warring, and to bring about a fruit of righteousness. Peacemakers bring forth righteousness in their deeds. And it might be illustrated here that James, again, as we've seen chapter by chapter here in in his book, he is referring to the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. That is exactly what he is demonstrating here. James then discloses the source of fights among believers as the remaining corruption of a believer. 
This is very important to understand because we often think that quarrels and fights between Christians are the result necessarily of theological errors. But James points out it's not theology. It is passion. And passion, let me just state this before we get into today's, uh, or into this passage. There is a perversion at work in the modern English tongue in which we have glorified words that were pathological just a century ago. When you think about the startup culture today, or you watch any videos, especially TED Talks, what do they advocate? They advocate becoming passionate about something. And there is good in understanding that we ought to be passionate about the right things, but the word passion in the English language describes something that is actually quite terrible. It means suffering. And so people who go on and say they are passionate about pizza or passionate about model trains are describing a sort of pathological idolatry in which they've devoted their lives to trivial matters. Passionate about anything other than Christ and the things of God is, is a terrible tragedy. We, we also glorify other words like, for example, obsessed. Have you ever heard that word? I'm really obsessed with bonsai trees. Have you ever heard someone say, obsession is a terrible thing if it is not obsessed about the right sort of thing. People who are truly obsessed about a hobby are, are to be pitied, not emulated. We ought, we ought not to hold them up as models for life. Nevertheless, he's describing something that we often, in the modern ear, modern tongue, we use to, to, to commend someone, but, but actually the way he uses it, it's, it's an indication of, of deep sin. What, car, what causes quarrels or fights or wars and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? This word passions is understood to be those sorts of things which are heart motivations that are of the flesh, not of the spirit. The source of all sin in Christian community is the dichotomy between the flesh and the spirit. Romans 7 and Galatians 5 bring this to bear. Our, our chief goal, or one of our, our secondary goal, goals, rather, in looking at James is to see how he relates to the writings of Paul. And Paul routinely warns his hearers that the, the inward remaining corruption of a believer ought to be killed. It ought to be warred against. It ought to be fought. Because Christians are simultaneously just and sinners, they are called to obey God and to put to death what is earthly within us. That is what James, or excuse me, Paul in, in Colossians 3 calls them to do. He says, because you've been made a new creation in Christ, because you have been redeemed by God, therefore put to death what is earthly within you. That would make no sense unless there was something to put to death. And yet Paul tells them to do that. When we neglect to do this duty by the grace of God, that is to say, when we fail to be actively putting to death sin, in our lives, sin then takes advantage of us and it brings forth death. Sin always will bring forth death. We mistakenly think that because we have passed out of death and we've come into life and we have a hope of a future justification by which we will be granted everlasting life, we presume that that means everything is fine. But sin, whether it is committed by someone who is far from God or sin committed by someone who is a new creation in Christ, still brings forth a type of death. Always. Verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Now, I, I think he is 
clearly speaking about real murder, but I also believe he is indicating the sort of murder which occupies the heart. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Again, he uses that word passions to indicate earthly, uh, fleshly desires that are at war against the Spirit. Though Christ promised to grant our needs by petition, he does not do so to satisfy our lusts. This is something that is in common supply in Christian teaching today, is that if you just ask God for money, you'll get it. Or if you just ask God for health, you'll get it. But oftentimes, when we come to God and we ask for these sorts of things, we're not asking God out of altruistic motives. We're asking God because we secretly want the thing more than we want God. He then goes on to call them adulterous people. When we seek to receive from God for our own pleasures, we reveal a love for this present world. Verse 4, you adulterous people. So what is James saying? He's saying that the sort of heart which is willing to come to God and to twist the promise of God, which said, if we ask, we will receive, that sort of heart which recognizes God as the truth and source of all blessing and benediction, and the heart which is enough, which trusts God's word enough to make use of the promise, but does all of those things for the wrong end, the wrong goal, that sort of heart is committing spiritual adultery. That is claiming to love Christ in the purity that befits the bride of Christ, and yet loving Satan and the things of the world. It is a sort of fornication spiritually, is what James is saying. They're committing adultery with their hearts. They're claiming to love their spouse, Christ, and yet they are captivated by the things of earth, which are passing away. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Enmity is a word that is hard to understand, but what it means is it is a war in which two sides never wish to cease fire. It is a sort of war which is like God's war against the Amalekites. God, God punished Amalek because they did not receive the Israelites as they were journeying to the promised land. And God promised in his wrath, he said, I will make war on them generation after generation. That is to say, God was unwilling to tolerate Amalek because he persecuted and would not give water to a thirsty people, his own people. And so God promised there will never be a ceasefire with Amalek. This is the nature of that word enmity. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you see how James is bringing to bear ideas that he started in the introduction of his letter, in, in chapter one, near the close of the chapter, he says that friendship with the or uh, pure religion rather is to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is a heart that has been stained by the things of the world and the value systems of the world. It is a heart which loves things more than God. It loves creatures more than the Creator. It loves physical goods or services or pleasures or appetites more than the source of all wisdom and understanding in life. It is the sort of heart which would appeal to that God to ask him to give them things. That is the sort of adultery which James has in mind. Those who are in love with this world oppose God and his people warring against them. I want to quickly turn to Second Timothy here just to read a verse to you 
about what happens at the end of Paul's letter to Timothy. He tells Timothy in verse 9 of 2 Timothy 4, do your best to come to me soon. He's asking Timothy to visit him. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Christians, I don't know how to pronounce that, has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. I don't know if he's saying that all of these people deserted him in the wrong way, but certainly Demas did. He says, Demas, in love with this present world. Now, I want you to think for a second. Demas, we don't know much about him, he was part of Paul's team. How many years had Demas served with Paul? And yet, Paul is able to write in the word of God without any error that Demas became in love with this present world, and that's why he has deserted him. Isn't that an amazing verse? That should cause you to shudder and to fear. Woe am I if I become Demas in my heart. And though I have party to the things of Christ and have some measure of the Spirit of God at work within me, if I give way to love for this present world, I will desert the chief apostle, Paul. Fights among those who profess to be Christians, therefore, must be solved by a ceasefire, not a ceasefire which can make peace with the things of the world versus the things of the Spirit, but a ceasefire that can only come about by repentance and reconciliation. James then exactly discloses this remedy. He's shown the wound of sin and clarity, and he lays out the remedy, which is humility and repentance. Verse 5, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealousy over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? One of the things that's interesting to me as a Christian walking with the Lord now for multiple decades, I'm approaching my 30th year this next year, And one of the things that's interesting to me is how quickly I can forget the preciousness of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been given to me and to you, if you are in Christ, as a gift, as a promise, according to Ephesians, as a seal of our inheritance, and I routinely, day after day, do things that grieve him and war against him. The Holy Spirit was given to me as a precious promise to be the source of all of my energy of fighting against sin and all of my seeking God in grace, the Holy Spirit is a precious gift, and yet I routinely dismiss and, dis- and, and make light of what I've been given. Verse 5 says that God yearns jealousy over the Spirit. I don't think he's just meaning a spirit on an earthly level or a human soul level. I think he's describing the Holy Spirit although your translation doesn't capitalize that word. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What is he saying in verse 6? He's saying that there is someone who is not uh, understanding the gift that they've been given in the Spirit, and so they are need and remedy. And then in verse 6, he says, but God gives more grace. This is what God is doing in this passage. He's shining a light on a heart wound that if left untreated will cause the death of the Christian. And yet, James, six, or James uh, 3, 4, verse 6 says, God gives more grace to this sort of condition of the heart. God is willing and ready to make a repair in the heart of a believer. For James, repentance towards God involves a spiritual yielding, yielding towards the providence of God producing godly contentment with one's place. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
And in the context of what he's been talking about, the sort of idea of selfish ambition and jealousy versus the wisdom which comes from above, the wisdom that is the fruit of the Spirit and fruit of the fear of the Lord, that sort of wisdom is a humbling wisdom. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resisting the devil means to renounce his ways of thinking and acting. What is the nature of the enemy? He is a liar. From the, he's been a liar from the beginning. He is a murderer. He is one that accuses. And he is one that is envious. The scripture does not give us a lot of understanding of the nature of Satan's fall. We know that he was created originally as an angel of light. And yet something happened in which he became envious and jealous Potentially, according to some readings in Ezekiel, we see that he became envious of God's position. And this is a passage which is not extremely clear, but it seems to indicate that the chief sin of Satan was wanting God's glory for himself. And this is what began his fall. Nevertheless, this is what his nature is today. He is murderous because he wants the thing which the other has. He is a slanderer because he is he knows he's condemned and he wishes to condemn others. He accuses the saints before God day and night. This is the nature of the enemy. That's why James says to resist the devil. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn, be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Drawing near to God must be done in faith. We know that the Hebrew writer says that if anyone comes to God, he must believe that God is, that God exists, and that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. This is why I maintain clearly James is not writing to unbelievers because in verse 8 he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And we know quite clearly that the only way God draws near to people is by reconciling the world to him in Christ, and that those who come in Christ turn, as uh, I believe it's Second Thessalonians, turn from idols to serve the living and true God. This is what I believe the pattern of Christian repentance is. It is a turning away from the things of this earth. It's a turning away from the things of Satan. It's turning away from these sorts of sins, selfish ambition, jealousy, and bitterness in your hearts, and turning towards Christ and renouncing those things and putting them away from your heart and mind. Notice clearly, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is a promise. Remember, this is the pattern of the gospel. God puts forth his word, he calls out and identifies sin, and then he gives a promise which, is ought, which we should believe and then obey in the light of. So we hear James warn us against selfish ambition and bitterness. What's the remedy? Is it to read our Bible more? Is it to pray more? Is it to seek to do enough good works that other people would hold us in high esteem? Is it to train ourselves for godliness? Brothers and sisters, all of those are good things, but they are not what James is saying. James is saying there needs to be an inward contrition in the heart which receives the wisdom of God and turns away from the patterns and strategies of the enemy. 
He says, to cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Is James asking for an external weeping alone, something that is merely done on the surface? No, he is asking for, indeed commanding, a rending of the heart and not of the garment alone. He is calling them to put away their idolatries, to destroy them on the altar, to smash them and never to return to them, and then to receive with wisdom the things of Christ. He says that they ought to cleanse their hands and purify their hearts. Godly repentance, therefore, I want to lay out three ideas about godly repentance. Godly repentance, therefore, changes one's hands and heart, that is, one's deeds and affections. James uses poetry to indicate things, and here I believe he's using the imagery of hands and heart as those things which shape the things we do. All of our work is done with our hands, and the things we love, those things which we enjoy in the heart. He's asking us to sacrifice to the Lord the things which we wish to hold on to with our hands and wish to cling to with our hearts. He's calling them to lay those things down. The next thing that godly repentance does, it is it brings his word to wash over all the issues of life. We remember in John 13 how Jesus came and he approached the disciples to wash them. This was at the upper room and they had uh, just completed the meal. And he goes to the people in the room and he begins to wash them. And when he gets to Peter, Peter says, Lord, you'll, you can't wash me. And he responds to Peter and says to Peter, Peter, if I do not wash you, you will have no part in me. And then he, Peter replies, seemingly getting it right this time. He says, okay, then wash my hands and my head as well. And Jesus replies to him and says, those who've already washed have no need of washing except to wash their feet. And the, the idea is that as a, a Jew in that day, if you've washed in the morning and you're walking around a dirty and dusty place in which there is all sorts of filthiness on the street, whether it be animal dung or just the common dirt of the world, you don't need to take another shower. You're mostly clean. What you need is for your feet, which are dirty from the walk of the day. That is what you need to be washed of. And then later on in that same book, John 15, Jesus says, you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Paul tells husbands to imitate Christ who took the bride, his body, the church, and washed her with the water of the word. And so when James calls them to cleanse their hands and to purify their hearts, I take him to be calling these people to bring the word of God to bear, to use the word of God as a lamp which shows the sin which remains within them, and then by that same light to expel those ways of life from their, from their hearts and minds. The final thing, godly repentance over sin recognizes the death that it brings and produces sorrow in the heart, not primarily for the consequence that one faces, but for this, grieving having offended the Lord. Knowing that my sins are the vehicle by which Christ was sent to the cross, I ought not to be flippant over the nature of sin. The sort of heart which truly looks to Christ does not say, let sin abound so that grace may abound more. That's what Paul's arguing. This idea that sin is a light matter or a trivial matter now that I'm a Christian, that sort of concept should never be entertained. 
Sin is always bringing forth a death. What do I mean by that? I mean that sin will always produce a death in some way. For example, this sort of faction and war that was going on in these churches, the quarrels and fights among you, as the King James translates it, the wars among you, those things cause spiritual death. They cause love for Christ to be lessened in a body and in the community, between people, between husbands and wives, between people in the church, between people in schools. These are the sort of things. And the death which comes is not necessarily a physical death or even a final spiritual death, but there is a loss of life. There is a loss of life in the sense of the community. And that death which gets worked through these passions always has a profound effect, and it needs reconciliation and repentance. If you've ever walked with the Lord for more than a few years, you will know quite clearly that the deepest wounds do not come from the world. It's very easy to put your guard up against what the world says about you, but the deepest wounds come from what other Christians say to you and think about you. The sorts of wounds which take years to recover from unless they are met with forgiveness and reconciliation. This is the sort of death that sin always brings. So godly repentance recognizes that sin breeds death. And at the very least, if you don't recognize the social or horizontal death that is brought through sin, you ought to recognize the loss of communion with God. That is to say, the heart which is entangled by sin cannot approach God in confidence. It has to approach God knowing that he is promised that those who confess their sins are forgiven and cleansed. 1 John 1, 9. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Nevertheless, the heart which is entrapped in sin, the heart which loves selfish ambition and jealousy, is not able to approach God in joy and felicity and in good grace. It's, it's not we shrink back because we are ashamed of our sin, because that's what shame produce, or sin produces. It produces a shame and, in a sense, a loss of life, a loss of communion with God. So godly repentance discards the laughter and joy, and I have those in quotes because I believe James is calling them to do away with the laughter and joy which comes from the world, not the laughter and joy which comes from Christ. He calls them to dismiss the laughter and joy which come through the false pleasures of sin and the world and exchange it for the sacrifices of God. Psalm 51 says that the sacrifices of God, the sacrifices which God loves, are a broken and a contrite heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they will be comforted. How will they be comforted? Is that only a promise for the Next stage, no, they'll be comforted by communion with Christ. Repentance, therefore, is the imitation of Christ. As Christ obediently suffered the cross in his death, he was raised to life in the resurrection and exalted in the ascension. I want you to, to, to think about the nature of Christ's incarnation. He was higher than the heavens. He dwelled with God. He was eternally present with the Father. He was the Word in the beginning, Right? And this word who was in the bosom of the Father came to the earth. It was incarnate as a baby. He was silent and he then lived a perfect life, was obedient in every way, performed ministry in power in the Holy Spirit, having perfectly obeyed God in every way, then obediently went to the cross and then died. And from that death, from that place of 
ultimate humility and ultimate obedience, he then was raised to new life, testified to his church, gave them the promise of the Spirit, and then was ascended. And he was bestowed a name upon which it is higher than every other name. That is the pattern of Christian obedience. It is humbling ourselves before the Lord, repenting of our sin, recognizing that we ourselves are dead and in need of new life. And by the life and mercy of Christ, we repent from dead works. We are given new life by the Spirit of God, and one day we will be with him in glory. That is the pattern of Christian repentance and obedience. It is imitating the life of Christ And this is exactly what I think James is pointing to in our final verse where we close. Only those who are humbled before the Lord will be raised to the joy of righteousness in God. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What a wonderful promise. Don't you wish to be exalted? You wish to be exalted, but the sort of exaltation which we ought to desire is not where James began with bitterness and selfish ambition. See how this is a perversion? The enemy perverted the original destiny of these believers to be exalted? What a wonderful promise. And yet that sort of heart which wants exaltation and and selfish ambition apart from Christ to be made much of by men will ultimately be humiliated in wrath. But the sort of humility which imitates Christ and dies to sin now is ultimately exalted and, and made much of by God. What a wonderful promise. Let's close. Father, we thank you for James. We thank you, Lord, that you do not leave us in our sin, that you are not content with bringing some new measure of life and yet, causing, and yet leaving us in a place where our hearts are steeped in evil. God, we pray that your spirit would come and convict of the sin which remains within us and that you would bring your word to bear, that we would be emboldened to purify our hearts and to cleanse our hands, to put away double-mindedness and to, to look to Christ as our only source of joy and truth and pleasure. Lord, we, we ask that you would deliver us from self-deception and that we would not presume upon your grace. Jesus, we pray that you would convince us of the preciousness of the Holy Spirit, that we would also be jealous to guard him, not that you would be jealous over your deposit alone. Father, I pray that you would work within us true holiness and that we would, we would not do it in some way that seeks to establish our own righteousness, but that humbly and meekly receives your forgiveness and your reconciliation and the righteousness which comes by faith. We pray, Lord, that you would allow this promise to be present in our minds in those moments where by conviction of the Spirit, we repent and mourn our sin and resolve to a new life, that we would do it with this promise in mind, that one day we will be exalted by you. Not in a way that pleases ourselves or makes much of ourself, but makes much of your grace and the work of your cross. Father, we thank you for these promises. We ask that by them we would obtain righteousness in Christ. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.